This is our uh, second old timer session. Gentlemen, 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 we're starting now. Oh, look at that. They're making faces at me. <laughs> what we have uh, here is Silas Warner, a real old timer. Uh, and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about the uh, history of Muse software. And it seems to me from talking to you folks, you have a number of questions. Well, Take it away. to begin with Muse software requires talking about commercial credit. Uh, commercial credit you know today as people who lend money at extortionate interest to people who can't afford anything else. In 1978, commercial credit was the lender with a social conscience. That was because they were owned by a person who could afford it, Bill Norris of Control Data. Um, Commercial credit was then pioneering in computer-based training. Up until, the time, up until the time of the microcomputer, the closest thing you could get to, a, to an outstanding game machine was a system called Plato. It had been developed at the University of Illinois. It was a gigantic CDC mainframe computer connected to a thousand terminals around the country. The great advantage to these terminals was that they were all identical, with identical screen formats and identical commands, and they were all graphics terminals. So as a result, you could write some really neat games on this thing. They did not recognize this fact and thought of it as an educational machine. <laughs> but <laughs> in um, 1978, there were strange things happening in the computer business. There was the Commodore PET computer, which had been seen all over the world in science magazines and on the Today Show and such. And there were rumors that Radio Shack might be doing something of the same thing. Um, so I went to a new animal called a computer store. Uh, the computer store is still there in Towson, Maryland. Um, they didn't have Commodore Pets and they didn't like them, but they recommended this new thing called an Apple II. Um, in 1978, I got Apple II number 234. Uh, it was $1,399, but it was a really big machine. It had all of 16K in it was the biggest machine they then created. It did not have AppleSoft, of course. It had Wozniak's original integer basic. And one interesting thing about this machine, the high-res on the machine had only four colors. The, as you know, when you draw in high-res, there are seven bits of uh, picture data and then an eighth bit that shifts the picture data <coughs> a dot over to produce two different colors. Well, on the machine I first bought, that little flipper dinger to use the 8th bit wasn't there. About uh, three months later, I took it back to the computer store and they installed the little flipper dinger to give us six whole colors in high res. Well, having this marvelous new machine, uh, I soon came in contact with two other people who also had this type of machine. Uh, one was Ed Zarin. Uh, he was the programmer on the 
credit scoring department, which decided whether people got loans or not. And the other was Jim Black, who was an accountant for the department that sent out the bills. These two uh, people and myself got together at night, um, sitting in Ed's living room on Ed's apples, Ed's apple, and started producing cassettes. We had two cassettes to start with. Uh, Ed Zarin had his tank war game, which uh, was uh, a high, which used high-res shapes. Just had four high-res shapes moving around, two tanks and two bullets. And they shot each other, and you could control what size your tank was. You could make it size one, size two, size three, or size four. Easier target. <laughs> I had my maze game, which was just basically a maze generator, and then displaying the maze in 3D from an, in, from an inside point of view. You could walk around it and eventually get out if you were lucky. Uh, these were cassette games, but we both realized that whatever this new home computer thing was, people were going to want something to do with it. We recorded cassettes all night in April of 1978 after working all day, but of course, um, all we had to do was get up and turn the cassette drive every now and then, and went to the Trenton Computer Festival. Trenton Computer Festival was where Muse Software was born. Ed drove up in his truck with a box of tapes and sold tank wars and maze games at an incredible rate. Uh, we began to realize that there really might be something to this software business. So we brought on Jim Black's girlfriend, who was an artist, Valerie Rocco. And she started drawing covers for us. We started putting cassettes together, and we built a kind of a shoebox in which you could ship the cassette, had a flap that folded up that gave the price list, and that was our first point of sale display. It went into the uh, stores, and uh, what stores there were, we had a we had a little um, flat, you know, a little uh, line on the bottom of our two-page Muse catalog, which said, "If you're a computer dealer, why don't you talk to us about carrying our line of products?" Send in this coupon with your name, address, and telephone number. And so we uh, we started getting computer dealers that way. We just we were touring shows on the East Coast. There were lots of shows on the East Coast then. There were shows in Philadelphia, and uh, of course the giant Trenton show, which is still going strong, and which if you're ever out there, by all means go and see. Um, and in the West, they were starting the computer fairs. So about that time we were busy going to shows. Our first catalog in 1978 had the maze game, it had the tank war, it had a shape maker that Ed had written to do his tank game. Remember the shape table? System. I had built a shape table maker. It was called U-Draw. Uh, we had also built a, uh, a music box, 
which uh, just played tunes out of the speaker when you pushed the keys, and you could also record the tunes and play them back. Um, and we had a couple of other things. We had a nice little, had a little math utility package for assembly language programmers called Number Cruncher, which no, which we never sold one of. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we also had four 200 six 200 lines basic games on one tape. The idea was to have something out there for the Apple II programmer who bought the small Apple with only 4K of memory. <laughs> and uh, so we had something in there for for those people as well. In our in the in the beginning of 1979, then Muse Software actually got an office. Uh, we were at we were above a gun shop in a suburban shopping mall. Ed decided to leave control data. Jim Black left a few months later. I rode the bus up every evening and uh, worked in the office and came home uh, in the, came home at night. Uh, we built uh, more we were building more cassettes. We built things like electric crayon and we built an advanced maze game called Escape with a couple of logic programs in it. And we started building a BBS system. Of course, all we knew about BBS systems back then was that there were, they were that a computerized bulletin board system had been invented and it was working on a uh, on a uh, S100 type of computer, but there had been nothing written for an Apple II. For that purpose, we got a DC Hayes Micromodem II, about one of the first of those to to be done. Um, I'll tell you a story about that a little later on about what the, what the industry was like. The main thing that happened from our point of view at this point was that I finished the App N1 text editor, which was a cassette-based editor that wrote text files. It worked beautifully. Uh, it was a line-oriented editor, which meant that you couldn't do, you do it for, um, you couldn't use it for word processing. It was also it was also an uppercase only editor because Apple's at that time didn't have lowercase chips in them, have lowercase chips in them, so it could be used to like you know recipe files and that kind of that kind of uh, thing that everybody knew that your personal computer was going to be good for one of these days. <laughs> and with that text editor came our third catalog. The next year, the disk drive came. We were incredibly disappointed to find out, first of all, I mean, we knew that the disk drive was going to cost $500. We could accept that. But we were incredibly disappointed to find, one, the disk drive took 48K, which was the biggest Apple anyone could possibly create. And two, that of that 48K, it used a whole 12K of the, of the space for just the, for just the disk, just the operating system. It didn't have the operating system built in. It took us a long time to learn DOS, but 
the first product that came out for, for uh, DOS was Dr. Memory. Basically, it was the AppN1 text editor with the disk operating system hooked up, built to hook up to the disk operating system and built to display upper and lower case. Of course, you couldn't do that on an Apple. There was no upper case. There was no lower case on an Apple. So what we did was we put the lowercase letters in ordinary text and put the uppercase letters in white. Um, also, there was no shift key, or at least if you push the shift key, you just got the same code back out of your keyboard. So we decided to use the escape key instead of the shift key. Whenever you wanted to shift a letter, you'd hit escape and then the letter. This we sold uh, for about a year, but it was obvious we were going to have to do something better, and Ed was already working on Supertext. A couple of other pro uh, products came out about this time. Uh, one of them was a pet project of mine, which never really achieved success, but which I think would be, still would be marvelous today. Uh, App Pilot. Uh, I had built a complete pilot language, uh, ran with Integer Basic. For those of you who don't know what Pilot is, it's a language that's used in course writing. Um, very simple language, even a teacher can understand it, that's the whole idea. <laughs> and um, uh, we, I supported that language, but the company really didn't, it didn't like the idea of us getting involved in a, in a language uh, project because you, you will see we were already having big trouble with Supertext. A thing that came out about this same time that had a major effect on us was product by Bob Bishop uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. I wish I could remember the name of his software company. Bob Bishop built a cassette called Apple Talker. Bob Bishop's Apple Talker was um, all it could do would be record through the cassette port and playback speech through the speaker. It was a little cassette uh, utility. Um, it was remarkable because Bob Bishop had done what had been proved in the 1870 by Alexander Graham Bell couldn't possibly work. Um, everybody knew that you couldn't get a decent voice out of anything that only turned a speaker on and off. And yet Bob Bishop's Apple Talker worked. It made a lot of difference to us uh, later on. But what we used it for then was a utility called the voice. We took the spare space of, a, of an Apple II computer, made it into a um, buffer for uh, voice for uh, speech files, which would be just words. Then we set up a routine. You could write your basic program, put out a string, and the Apple would go to the disk, assemble the text, assemble the words of the text, and actually speak it. The voice was not extraordinarily useful, as it turned out, but it made a great splash in the marketplace. The idea of, a of buying a home computer that could talk, that could... Uh, say uh, any sentence you typed into it, presumably, really caught the attention of the news media, and we actually had it demonstrated on the Today Show. Mm -hmm. 
Before we go any further, I want to ask anybody if they have any questions. Yeah. All the programs you were writing at that time, were you just writing them straight to the monitor? We were writing, uh, that's a good point. When we were writing them, we were writing them in the monitor's assembler. Uh, we did not have uh, a, uh, an assembler of our own. We tried using Ted Asim, but decided it wasn't worth it. <laughs> but as but as Supertext came up, a product came to our attention, and I'm not going to say who wrote it for reasons that I will I will make plain to you. It was an assembler of an entirely radical kind. The guy, it was going to speed up our development immensely, but the guy who wrote it wanted as a price basically half our company. Um, instead of doing that, Ed Saren got into uh, overnight mode and duplicated the features of the assembler without duplicating any of the code. This became our secret weapon in developing uh, programs, uh, the Muse VMA or Virtual Memory Assembler. I want to show you some of the remarkable features of this thing. I originally had slides to show you this, but they got lost in transition. I'll write you a little piece of code how I'd love to make Assembler, but that's what our assembler code looked like. The at sign was a synonym for JSR. There was no, there was no such thing as a ds.b or a dc.b or a, or a vb or any kind of defined. If you wanted to put a number in your code, you just wrote it. Um, if you did parentheses around something, it assumed that that was an argument and it strung it in right after, it was strung it in right in its place in the assembly code. If you put quotes around something, it made it a, a string constant. If you put double quotes around something, it made it a string constant and stuck a zero after it. This was combined with a little piece of code that we called an R. Called R. It was facing everything we did.
Anybody care to figure out what that does? You call a routine. The routine calls arg. Arg picks up the stack address that called the routine, advances it by one, and picks up the number there. That meant that when you wrote something like this, SCR post would call arg and pick up a three, it would call arg and pick up a two, and it would do what you want with them. This had two great advantages. First, as you can see, it made argumented <coughs> code easy to write. It made assembly language that almost looked like uh, high-level language. The second advantage was that it made our code impossible to disassemble <laughs> because <laughs> code and data were mixed up all the way through the assembly, all the way through the assembled file. The VMA was our secret weapon for all the years that Muse was in operation. We, uh, we used it for all of our 6502 products. We used it for Apples. We used it for Commodores. We used it for Ataris. In fact, at the last, our development system ran Apples off a Corvus hard disk at 40 meg, with each volume being for a specific project, and each volume being marked for what target computer it was. Our VMA, our virtual memory assembler, would take files off the Corvus hard disk, assemble them into a program, and download them directly to the target through the parallel port. In this way, you, if you've ever tried to assemble something on a Commodore 64, you know why having an Apple hard disk is so such a... Yeah, a secret weapon in developing programs. <laughs> the first product that uh, came out came out using the virtual memory assembler was the Supertex. It had been rewritten. Uh, it had been started under Ted Asim and had been rewritten to go into this assembler. That was fortunate because Supertex was also the source editor for this assembler. It was a complete replacement for Dr. Memory, which had been line-oriented. New Supertext was continuous text-oriented. But it was so huge that you could only put 16K of file in a 48K computer. But on the other hand, it could do incredible things. It could link your files together automatically, so that if you, if you had more than 16K of text, you would just point one file to the next file, and you would automatically go from go down through the files, or semi-automatically anyway. Um, the Supertext still used uh, white text for the uppercase, because we still didn't have lowercase adapters. Um, however, you could buy, now, an optional lowercase RAM, lowercase ROM, rather, that would fit in place of your keyboard character generator. Uh, we got this at a reduced rate and sold it, sold them pretty heavily with Supertext. Uh, to go along with that, we packaged with every Supertext a foot of wire. You connected one end of the wire to the Annunciator 2 port, and you connected the other end of the wire to the keyboard on your shift key, and you had what we call the shift key mod. This later proved so popular that Apple actually put it in later 2Es and 2Gs, but we originated it. 
About the same time as Supertext, another of my pet projects started to go, uh, started to come into existence. That was uh, a lesson, well, programs were called lessons on the Plato system. And I'd done this lesson or program on the Plato system in about 1977. And um, in that, le in that uh, on the Plato system, a popular, popular genre of games were what you called big board games. Uh, you would uh, uh, log into a, a list of uh, opponents. You would select your opponent and be thrown off to a, uh, a two-player um, uh, game of some sort, which you two would play and then be thrown back to the, uh, to the main list. The idea that I came up with was, instead of having two players who were live in place, you could have a player and his proxy who were already programmed. You would have your two players program a computer, and that computer would engage in the battle. This was put on Plato under the name Robot War. When, we, when it came to adapting it for the uh, Apple, we decided to expand the battlefield a little bit. Instead of just two robots, you now had five roaming around the battlefield. Uh, we built it first in BASIC, but it quickly grew too big to be in BASIC. So we reprogrammed it in assembly language and did something that was very original at the time, but which since everybody has done, and that is to present the, uh, the assembly language file as a basic program whose only basic instruction is call 2051. Then the rest of it is an assembly language file. We call this fake basic, and we used it on every uh, type of computer, even on IBMs. Uh, even though IBMs, IBMs in those days came with basic as practically part of the DOS. So, fake basic was very important. Robot War was a mild success by our own standards. Um, of course, computer gaming world came into existence in about 1986, and the, one of their first uh, promotions was a Robot War tournament uh, with uh, robots in from all across the country. And so we had uh, machines... Uh, running Robot War uh, day and night for several months in our basement. See, by this time we'd moved into 330 North Charles Street. It was right downtown. It had um, a first floor and a second floor area. We all worked in the second floor area. By this time, it was myself, Jim Black, uh, Ed Zarin, Valerie, uh, an accountant by the name of Gary Taylor, and we had one other programmer. Oh, yeah, Eric. Eric had come on by that point. Downstairs, however, we had the Muse Computer Center, our retail store. We got the retail store for two reasons. First of all, we got it to try out our products. We were able to put our products in the Muse Computer Center and see how they were, see how they would play. 
The second reason for the Muse Computer Center was that we got dealer prices on everything. <laughs> and we were also we also ordered our competitor software. Not only to stock in the store, but to see what they were doing, uh, see what uh, we were doing uh, with respect to them. Yes, but good handle on the competition. I remember us all gathering around the the twenty the uh, five foot projection TV um, that was sitting in the store window when Sirius Epoch came out. Uh, if you will remember Epoch, you could imagine what it would be like on a five foot projection TV. Still. We were looking around. For Supertext, we had a problem. The problem was that it was only 40 columns across. There were theoretical ways of expanding it to uh, 70 columns, but they would require building character generators that worked on the high-res screen. So I built the character generator that worked on the high-res screen. And But it was too big. The high-res screen took up too much of the too much of the code. We didn't have a good way to. We we're still trying to figure it out. And then there was. Then one night at a 7 Eleven, I saw a video game called, I believe, Robotron 2084. Um, and realized that this could do really nicely if I built it with the high res character generator. But it was such a cliche. I mean, you know, it was just, you know, just robots and and uh, science fiction gadgetry and all the all the um, <coughs> trappings of that era. Uh, it the whole the whole concept of the game was just a big cliche. And well, I wondered what else could you do with it. And then I saw the guns of Navarone <laughs> and realized what you could do with it. <laughs> So Castle Wolfenstein came out about uh, six months later. Um, we put everything in there. We put the high-res character generator. Uh, we put um, our new disk manipulation routines. We put the virtual memory assembler, and we put the voice. Uh, we had. Uh, we now have. We're working with a professional recording studio who was still doing cassettes for us. Uh, they were Flight Three, and. Um, uh, they had developed processes to uh, uh, process the, we developed processes to take the audio signal through graphics equalizers and such that made it, the cassettes much better to load. We naturally trumpeted this in our advertising. Superload cassettes, we call them. So we went down there one fine day, and I spent several hours in the microphone saying, Achtung! <laughs> At that point, um, <laughs> At that point, uh, Castle Wolfenstein. When Castle Wolfenstein came out, of course, it was. It support. It supported our program. Supported our company, right up until the time it um, collapsed in 1985. It supported um, Main Street Publishing while. Uh, while they still had it, and now it's got supporting a new generation of folks. So, and I want to uh, I want to talk to some of these folks who wrote Wolfenstein 3D. I did we just to digress. I they did call me and ask for permission to use the game, and I told them yes. As far as I was concerned, they could use the game, but they would have to get permission from the people who still owned the copyright, 
And we'll get to that question a little later on. Further, any questions at this point? Yeah. Oh, okay. When was ABM written? ABM was written about um, two months, well, about, yeah. It was written just before we started Castle Wolfenstein. And um, it was a straight, as far as we knew, it was a straight license uh, from Atari Missile Command. Uh, basically, we wrote it, and then Atari, we knew Atari was going to come back and someday say, we want a license fee from you. Well, we figured we could get a few sales in before they actually demanded it. Um, they came back, demanded a license fee. We paid it. ABM came on that. By the way, this interesting uh, story about the title of ABM. Uh, we built a scrolling uh, thing that would print up ABM in black and white squares using the text screen. And um, um, so it would come up, and then the rest of Mu software and all that would come up. The ABM would scroll up from the bottom real quick. Well, we made a mistake in that uh, program. And instead of ABM scrolling up from the bottom and stopping, ABM would scroll up from the bottom, blip, 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 up continuously. And we thought this looked so good that we kept it in the game, only adding, only adding a counter so that it would, it would do that five times. <laughs> when, did you, when did you do Firebug? We'll get, oh, uh, we, was, yeah. Was Firebug was a little later on. Uh, about this time, we, we did wind up our cassette business. We had a couple of cassettes that were... Um, uh, in good shape. Uh, Ed had written something called Uncle Sam's Jigsaw, which was just a, you know, name the states kind of education thing. Uh, he was influenced by the fact that I was doing all this education, trying to do all this education stuff with that pilot, and he wanted to do something of that sort. It never did much, but uh, it was, didn't even do, really do enough to justify inclusion in the disc, which we later did. But another um, cassette submission. Another cassette was a submission that came to us on cassette, was designed on cassette, and uh, we couldn't uh, we couldn't persuade the author to buy a disk drive until we'd sold a few of his programs to pay for it. Uh -huh. um, the author's name was Richard Orban. He was involved in the next great publicity splash for Muse Software. Richard Orban had been working as chemical engineer. He lived way out in the country of the eastern shore in Denton, Maryland, which is across the bridge. He, he didn't like to come in very much. Uh, he finished a disc game called International Grand Prix and then proceeded to build his own disc protection system for it, which made us very unhappy about him because he wouldn't have it sold under our, our protection system. He had to have it under his. But after that one was completed, Richard Orban got, a, got an idea based on the news. I told you he was a chemical engineer. He started building simulations. And about five months later, he came out with the game Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island was never a great success commercially. 
it uh, didn't um, it didn't um, uh, sell a whole lot of programs. For one thing, it was just too complicated and too too uh, difficult to master. Of course, that was part of the point that he was trying to make. But what it did do was <laughs> it got us on every single local news program in the nation over a period of about two months. It got us on all the network news. Uh, it got us on the morning shows. Um, Ed, uh, who is our, officially our president, the only reason we were never able to get interviewed for Good Morning America was that Ed, who was our president, wanted to be interviewed on his own terms, and he wouldn't let anybody else talk to the press. Um, however, we got so much publicity out of Three Mile Island that it was well worth it, no matter, even though the, uh, even though the actual uh, profit returns were pretty small. Um, about the same time, also, we wound up our cassette business and published the cassettes that we sold on a single disc, Best of Muse cassettes. It, it did all right, not terrific, but it, it did all right. A problem that poked up all along through this time was tech support. In those days, it was especially, it was especially critical with supertext. The Apple was a standard computer. But there was no standard printer. Everybody had a different kind of printer out there. And what's worse, the printers had to be connected to the Apple by interface cards, and nobody had a standard interface card. Apple put out its printer interface card, but it was so expensive that everybody and his brother built cheap printer interface cards. We had printer interface cards, for instance, that had no software on them. They had just a uh, UART, and they had to be driven by a software program that was loaded into the, uh, into the uh, memory. We had uh, parallel printer interface cards where the parallel interface was actually a UART. You'd send it into the buffer as if it were a serial, and then you'd switch, you'd switch uh, uh, ends and drop it out of the buffer as if it had been just received from serial. Um, we had every conceivable possibility for printers and interface cards. Remember, not even Epson standard was, was known then. And the joke was that um, every couple of hours you'd pick up the phone and somebody would come on and say, I have a Donghatsu 4751 printer with a blogged in B7340 interface. How do I connect Supertext to work on this, work on my Apple? Um, we found the solution to this problem. Uh, his name was Marty Amberg. Uh, he was a um, a five foot six face buried in a cauliflower blonde hair. He lived in a commune in the upper uh, uh, reaches of Maryland with uh, six other guys eating macrobiotic rice and chanting. <laughs> And all of this made him our ideal technical support person. He could stand and talk to a person 
who, when asked to press return, typed R-E-T-U-R-N. And not ever miss, not ever miss a beat, blow up, get mad. He was one of the great assets that Muse Software had. His name was Marty Amberg. Uh, eventually, the commune broke up. Um, Marty had to find an apartment, and six weeks later, he quit in disgust. Uh, but uh, just goes to show you the, the value of some alternative lifestyles, I think. Supertext itself was needing revision by now. All these printer and interface combinations had produced great need for such things as definable key sequences and uh, special uh, load-up, uh, special uh, uh, parameter-setting programs. Supertext 2 was our next project out. It came out just about the same time Castle Wolfenstein came out. We simplified a lot. For one thing, we assumed that you had a lowercase chip and a shift key mod. Uh, we also allowed you to switch printing so that you could print either form or sheet feed. That is, it would stop and wait for you to put in the next page if you asked for it. We built very complex system of page headers and footers, and we started adding modules. Um, basically, at first we had only a print module, which would print out your text, and a math module, which would act like a little spreadsheet and do some arithmetic on your text. We were also working on a terminal module, which would um, enable you to uh, send your text over the phone. Uh, that didn't get too far because we had problems with the um, with the different types of modems in use. The DC Hayes micro modem, uh, which we were using internally, was um, had an, one command set. The DC Hayes smart modem, which was coming out at the same time, had another command set. Later on, it turned out, of course, that the micro modem command set was not Hayes compatible. Uh, so the smart modem command set became standard, but and there were other there were other modems uh, uh, other modem standards that were coming out at the time to complicate things. Our smart modem broke down, and uh, we called up uh, DC Hayes technical support to get it fixed. Um, DC Hayes technical support turned out to be in fact DC Hayes. His first name is Dennis. Um, this gives you an idea of what the computer business was like, the microcomputer business was like at that time, but it wasn't that way for long. We had to move once again. Uh, there had been changes in our company. Jim Black uh, had one final fight with Ed Zarin and left. His by now wife, Valerie, also left. Um, however, we managed to get hold of a remarkable man uh, who had been in the toy business his name was Pete Viveris, and Pete Viveris was with us through all the successful years of Muse and was probably responsible for our success, and this was proved much later on. About this time, yeah. From now on, the story of Muse begins to diverge away from the Apple. The Commodore 64 came out at $399.00. Within a year, it was 99. Within two years, it was 49. Um, the resultant explosion of computer ownership 
meant that the apple was no longer a was, could no longer be our primary marketplace. From now on, we started designing things for the Commodore 64. Our apples were still in use. As I say, assembling things on a Commodore 64 isn't fun. Our apples were still our primary programming tools. But the Commodore 64 increasingly became our like increasingly became our bread and butter. We began building, uh, of course, we converted Castle Wolfenstein both to Atari and Commodore. We also converted Supertech to Commodore, where it became very successful. Uh, we, some of our own internal Commodore projects included Smart Start, which was uh, a nice little operating system, very simple, but close to GEOS in spirit except that it fit into the space in the Commodore 64 behind the uh, behind the basic and therefore could be made invisible unless you wanted to use it. One, there were a couple of products which came out on the Apple uh, beyond that point, but the only product that really, I think, was important for the Apple, the new software produced after that, was the final result of AppPilot. Remember AppPilot, our educational language? It was worked excellently. By now we enhanced it with high-res characters, with different modules for input and output devices. We added some special modules. We wrote some programs, and the result was Know Your Apple. Know Your Apple came out in 1983. No, sorry, beginning of 1984. It filled a niche that Apple dealers all over the country were, were uh, demanding be filled. The need for somebody, when somebody got an Apple, they wanted a tutorial to tell them what it did and how to work with it. And Know Your Apple filled that need. Everybody knew that Apple was working on, Apple Computer themselves was working on some kind of tutorial for the, for the Apple. But Know Your Apple came out first. Know Your Apple was a continuous success, largely because we'd gotten it, uh, we had the AppPilot language ready to do this project. And when we completed it, uh, Apple Presents Apple came out uh, about five months later in that same year. And Know Your Apple sales did not go to zero. People would, all over computer stores, all over the country, we were hearing that computer store people were saying, if you really want to know the insides of your Apple inside and out and how to program and how to do everything with it, then you can get Apple Presents Apple. But if you just want to use it, pick up Know Your Apple and you'll, you'll have enough to know uh, to work with it. The death of Muse software was sudden and quite unexpected. Pete Viveris, who had been our sales manager, who had managed our... our uh, growth through the 64 market, finally decided that he could do better on his own and left us. The man we hired back, I won't give his name, he was, he came from the elect consumer electronics business. He was um, every bit as smart and every bit as enthusiastic as Pete Viveris had been, but he had one fatal flaw, and I mean fatal. He had AIDS. He had um, gotten it by blood transfusion. He'd had an operation and had blood transfusion. 
and the symptoms started showing up almost as soon as he came on board with us. And by nine months later, he was unable to work and had to be had to be uh, let go. And with the demise of our marketing department, uh, our company was going full blast straight ahead. We were developing. We had developed a number of wonderful new products on the Commodore 64. We were developing an even better uh, word processor for the Apple using ProDOS. But by that time, we had no sales, none at all. And developing a uh, product is not very good when you have nothing to support it. All at once came the announcement that our company was had to, had to cut back, quit. The entire development department was fired except for myself, but I knew that the, that the financial situation was such that we wouldn't survive much longer. So I left, and two weeks later, the company filed for Chapter 7. That's not Chapter 11 reorganization bankruptcy. That's sell the assets, uh, close the doors, lock it up, party's over. Muse's assets went to a jobber, a variety of a, a reseller of various trinkets and gewgaws, his name was Jerry Hershkowitz. Uh, he operated under the name of Variety Discounters. For a couple of years, he sold out the remaining stock of Muse products. Uh, then the stock was gone. There was not a, he was not interested in, in it was just a sideline for him. Uh, and Muse basically died quietly in about 1987. Any questions? Well, it was. It became fairly obvious that we were going to need a sequel to it. Um, that was in 1985. Uh, uh, what? Yeah, I, I didn't, because I was not heavily involved in Beyond Castle Wolfenstein. Uh, that project was carried largely by some of our other people, by Greg Tavares and Eric Ace. Uh, the routines that I had, we used again. Uh, we sat down and defined what we were going to call Destroy the Fuhrer in a conference. Um, uh, over, a, over a period of a week, um, Ed went around several times with the, the design document. And that product was really designed the way products are designed today, with a document and designers and uh, programmers, of course, we didn't have artists um, on our staff uh, at that time. Had we had we been go had we been going a few more um, had we gone past 1985, we probably would have added artists to our staff. But while um, while Beyond Castle Wolfenstein was proceeding, I personally was doing mostly Know Your Apple and also the conversion of Castle to the Commodore 64. Yeah. Out of curiosity, why didn't you like the idea that he was in the National Grand Prix of his doing his copy protection? Because in those days, it was great fun to, because it seemed to me, that, if I remember right, his was tougher to break 
in years, but it used to be great fun to break them <laughs> so you could pack two or three games on a disc. Because our disc cost something that, you know, it was our goal to go to a swap meet and find a, a box of name brand discs for under two bucks tax included, you know. So it was worthwhile to pack, you know, as many games as you could get well, on I'll the Well, I'll talk a bit about the Muse copy protection because I was involved in that. Our philosophy with the copy protection was simply to build a copying system, build a protection system that could not be copied by standard DOS copy. We knew that we could spend months on end devising endlessly more complicated and uh, elaborate protection systems, but all we would do would be to cause people like you to spend months on end devising endlessly more complicated and elaborate cracking systems. <laughs> um, we figured that the race just wasn't worth it, that uh, the, the hackers out there were going to get their copies of our software no matter what we did. So our goal was simply to keep the casual user from being able to put our disk in a standard casual type copy program and copy it. No, he just built it. He just built his own special system for International Grand Prix. But it was a great problem for us because we had we would send we sent our discs out to be copied, but we also had what we internally uh, uh, called check discs. But what and what they were were discs that we had built ourselves, copied on apples in the basement and booted. And we used check discs, for instance, to send to reviewers. We used check discs to send to uh, people whose discs had blown. Um, so we just made sure with the, with the, we made extra sure with those discs. And most of our stuff we could just copy on a standard copy system that we developed internally in our apples. But um, Richard Orban's International Grand Prix required special resettings of all our apples before we could copy it. We had to go back and, and realign the disk drives and so forth before we could copy it. So it's not. And what was the evolution of it? You started to say about how uh, Wolfenstein went through Main Street and, and something about that. You were talking about how it's running on a Toshiba or XYZ. Or well, uh, you can talk to the folks who did it. Actually, what happened is that a few. Um, Months ago, I got a call from some producers who wanted to create Castle Wolfenstein 3D. They wanted to build a new version of Castle Wolfenstein using modern technology. Actually, uh, I, I have seen their product, and it's very darn impressive on an IBM. It's an IBM program. And um, I'm sure if you beg and plead hard enough, they might want to do a 2GS version, but I don't know. There is. I was going to ask you about the GS version. I, I mean, don't believe I, there is a GS version. Somewhere, uh, I've seen it can't be done, but it's <laughs> only a matter of time. I've seen a programmer talking about that sound castle on sign 3D. Someone started a little GS clone castle on sign. There's this couple of rooms that this guy kept controlling. Actually, we had a. We were originally going to do a 3D design of Castle Wolfenstein for the Macintosh, but. That basically that went by the wayside when the Commodore 64 absorbed all our time and energy. We have time for one more question. Yeah. During the uh, 
glory days of views, like what kind of sales did you have? Uh, at the top of our at the top of our um, our peak, our sales went to six million a year. That was our peak. Um, yeah, and that was 1984 and 1985. Like I say, 1984 with a good marketing department, we had six million a year. In 1985, with no marketing department, we had zero. I mean, literal. In fact, we had less than zero because Toys R Us were returning all the 60, <laughs> Commodore 64 products that they. Uh, at five million dollars, uh, typically our dealer prices. Remember that our software prices were then about thirty-nine ninety-five. So our dealer prices would be a little under twenty dollars a unit. You can figure it from there. Well, Silas, thank you. Uh,